I'm not anti-testing per se. I'm anti-testing that does not have meaning. And I'm also anti-putting consequences to testing where the person who was either taking the test or the person who taught the student taking the test has no agency over the results. Welcome to TG2Cast. I'm Arthur Caravalli, co-founder of Teachers Going Gradeless. In this episode, I interview Nate Bowling. Bowling is an AP Social Studies teacher, the 2016 Washington State Teacher of the Year, a National Teacher of the Year finalist, a Milken Award winner, and co-founder of Teachers United. He is also the host of the Nerd Farmer podcast and has recently emigrated from the United States to the United Arab Emirates, where he teaches AP Government and Politics at the American Community School of Abu Dhabi. Welcome, Nate. How are things in Abu Dhabi? Uh, things are pretty good here. We are under a pretty robust quarantine, and so I'm confined to my apartment for the most part, uh, but I feel safe and my students are safe, and because we have a pretty good uh, setup with online learning uh, up and going, uh, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about things, honestly. Good. Good to hear. I wanted to actually start out our interview a little bit about why you are in Abu Dhabi. As I mentioned in the intro, you are the 2016 Washington State Teacher of the Year. You were a National Teacher of the Year finalist, a Milken Award winner. In short, you kind of had made a little bit of a name for yourself in American education. Can you tell us more about why you and your wife, Hope, decided to make this change? It's interesting. So I have been a teacher now for 14 years, and I was at my prior school, Lincoln High School, for a decade. And I loved and continue to love Lincoln High School with all of my heart. Uh, it's your traditional like low-income urban school that was built in the 1900, early 1900s and has kind of seen the demographic waves uh, of going from a working class white community to a largely like immigrant and minority population. I have had a lot of offers to do things like I've been offered to run and found charter schools. I've been offered to do teacher preparation. I've been offered policy work, but I've never wanted to do anything else but teach. And I reached a point where like the job of teaching and learning in that, in that building, uh, along with the other things that I was trying to do was no longer sustainable. And for me, I love the city of Tacoma and I love my community too much to, I couldn't like slide across town to like the, to stadium high school, which is our rival school, which is a much more affluent school. Uh, I, if I was going to leave, I had to like leave and have a clean break. And so we decided to go abroad. You had a really interesting Twitter thread in 2019, when you looked at your class yeah. of teachers of the year and where they ended up, and I think it's still pinned to your profile, at the time, they were either leaving teachers or striking. Yeah. You asked the question, what does it say about the state of U.S. schools that half of us felt drawn to D.C. to do policy work, and two of us that remained in the classroom both went on strike this year? I just wonder, is your leaving the U.S. something of a continuation of that question? I, th I think so, honestly. Like, the work and the job of a teacher in a low-income school in the United States as currently uh, constructed, to me, is unsustainable if I want to maintain the level of excellence that I expect of myself and if I also want to be an advocate. And so I was confronted with the idea of, I can stay in this building with these students that I love in my neighborhood and I can burn out or mm -hmm. I can stop doing the advocacy work and like focus on my classroom and just close my doors like a lot of teachers do, or I could become mm -hmm. a less effective teacher and I chose none of the above and chose to move. And so mm -hmm. uh, 
my wife and I have always been travelers. There was like an, actually an incident in the summer of 2018, like when we were in Thailand and we got on this bus and we were ride, like riding out to some beach and mm-hmm. a bunch of like little kids got on in like their British style school suits and the girls were wearing hijabs. And I was like, I turned to my wife and said, man, I would teach the hell out of those kids. And uh, <laughs> like from that, uh, later on in the same trip, we were in Kuala Lumpur, uh, Malaysia, and I found myself really liking that. And we talked about going abroad and all of a sudden going abroad went from something we talked about to something like we were really seriously pursuing. I think for context, like I'm a black male uh, with a fairly large social media profile and presence online. And uh, I've received a lot of abuse. And this isn't like me whining, but like it's it's in, in the time of President Trump, it's, it's not easy being a black person with opinions in the world. And mm-hmm. uh, I've always been a traveler. I've visited over 20 countries. It was just time for me to do something different. And I think that making this move extended my career by 10 years. I, I I think you know my first interest in in you know finding you and and obviously um, you know your advocacy and your work as a former AP teacher myself um, I'd been reading your work for a while now and this issue of inequitable access to advanced coursework that has been a major yeah. focus in your writing and advocacy and I feel in some ways. College Board has lent some lip service to those same goals in recent years. I think you even tweeted recently that the College Board thanked you, you know, for some of your advocacy around that, uh, promoting increased access for students of color and other other students who have been underrepresented in advanced classes. I think fast forward to 2020, the COVID-19 crisis, College Board's response to that pandemic with its strict time limitations, a worldwide schedule for the exams that will have many students taking the test between midnight and 6 a.m. You and I both added our name to an open letter to the College Board that I think is going to be published in the next day or two. What are some of the issues you see with the College Board obviously an American company pressing forward with this strategy at this time. So my issues with the, with the college board are, there's like the immediate issues with the testing. Uh, like you mentioned, I'm here in the Middle East and so we're on Gulf Standard Time. Uh, my students are scheduled to take the AP exam at midnight and mm. no lawyer takes the bar exam at midnight. No doctor going to take the, the MCAT or doctor to be does it at midnight. When I was going to my teaching program, I didn't take the, the TPEP or the TPAS, whatever the hell the standardized test was <laughs> of the moment at midnight. Like that's preposterous. Like you're expecting students during a pandemic to take a test in an unfamiliar learning environment at midnight during Ramadan. Like it's, it's, it's inexcusable, frankly, for an organization that gives lip service to, to equity. Moving further to the East, kids in Singapore are taking the exam at four o'clock in the morning. Like there's... We have to do better than that. Like we we owe students, if we're going to give students this high stakes exam and take their parents' hard-earned money, we owe them better than that. But honestly, my issues with the college board are larger than that. And this is where uh, I might lose some of the audience. I just have a kind <laughs> of like grounding philosophical belief that education, law enforcement, healthcare, and war fighting should never be done for profit. And when you do those mm-hmm. things for profit, you introduce all sorts of bad motives. And like we can see this with fee-for-service medicine in the United States, uh, the idea that like U.S. healthcare companies are very profitable while American life expectancy is on the decline. And if the college board is going to occupy the space in American education that it does, and for, for, by the way, for the uninitiated, the college board is also the people that make the SAT. 
if mm-hmm. this work is so important, uh, this work should be done by a government agency and not by a private corporation. And so my immediate beef with the college board is about these exams and the idea they're making my babies get up at midnight for an exam. Uh, but like mm-hmm. my larger idea about the college board is frankly, it should be nationalized. What functioning democracy says to like, hey, hey, private corporation, why don't you take charge and be the ones who decide uh, what kids are eligible to go to elite universities? Hey, private corporation, why don't you decide what a uh, college equivalent credit is? And like, like, that's ridiculous. Like, we'd be much better off if we either nationalize the college board or if each of the 50 states moved to their own state exams that were aligned with their state universities. But that's a whole different episode, I think. Right, right. But they're, they're a nonprofit, right? Is, uh, am I wrong on that? <laughs> well, wasn't the, wasn't the NFL a nonprofit up until like three years ago? I, like that, that word nonprofit, yeah. like, come on, yeah. It gets abused a little bit. Um, the megachurches are nonprofits. Right, exactly. So, you know, I, I think another thing that we would add to this over on our, our side of things, um, you know, we're going to be put, taking this probably at a, at a reasonable hour in the United States. Um, but add to this that many of the communities most impacted by COVID-19 are facing unprecedented levels of stress, uh, in many cases, receiving a severely compromised education. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it does seem that this has been something of a last straw for you with the College Board. The tone of your tweets, have, as we mentioned a little bit earlier on, has become a little bit less nuanced. Um, you said when someone in my uh, timeline called the College Board the big tobacco of education, I'm waiting to be convinced otherwise. Uh, you also tweeted, I want to burden a college board to the ground. <laughs> and <laughs> you're, you're preaching to the choir with me. But I, I have to say that this feels somewhat new for you. I feel like there was there was something of a partnership, at least, you know, in, yeah. in increasing access to the college board, increasing access to advanced classes feels like something has shifted for you that is new. Um, in in the last year or so. So my advocacy is always proximal to the struggles of my students. Mm -hmm. And so when I was working in a low-income school in the United States and in the United States, so a school like Lincoln High School, where I'm from traditionally, would have like one AP government class and it would be filled with like the uh, wealthy white children and the the, the Asian kids who are the right kind of Asian because there's colorism within our discrimination against Asians, different conversation. Right. my school had seven sections of AP, AP government. And so basically like my, my struggle in the States was I want as many kids as possible to have access to this opportunity. Mm. And I worked for an amazing district Tacoma schools that funded the cost of every exam. And so like, that was my advocacy. Then I wanted everybody doing what I was doing uh, in Washington state. Like if, if kids at Lincoln high school can take AP exams for free and can get an AP classes, regardless of economic status, regardless of race, regardless of prior academic performance, then like we could do that at other schools. Mm. Moving over here, my proximal struggle is different. Mm -hmm. So back in the States, we're asking kids who don't have uh, homes, internet, oftentimes, to take the AP exam, which is going to be an essay form, from their phone. And then they can either write their essay on their phone or they can write it in a notebook and then scan it in the five-minute window the College Board offers up. (laughs) Like, that's nuts. Mm -hmm. Like, that that is not good practice in any shape or form. But that's not the struggle of my students right now. The struggle of my students right now, because I'll own, I'm, I have the opportunity to work at a privileged school. Like my kids' life needs are met. Mm-hmm. They have home internet. They have MacBooks that we use in class every day. Uh, so the struggle of my students right now is, is that they're being asked to perform their best on an exam at midnight 
during Ramadan, and that's just poor practice. And so I would say that if you see shifts in my in my focus and discourse, that's because you're seeing shifts in like the learning environment which I'm immersed in. I wanted to kind of I wanted to connect a couple dots there a little bit. I do want to kind of press on this a little bit more that you've said that you're not against testing. Um, you're against over testing. It does seem you know when when you were back in Washington State, you did a presentation of the Washington State Board of Education. You shared Lincoln High School's calendar for the spring, which was clearly cluttered with tests. Um, yeah. So you acknowledge the role of these kinds of assessments. You maintain that there has to be a better way than just packing that calendar for March, you know, with test or test prep. I connect the dots a little bit with a blog post that you wrote, Rethinking Social Studies for an Uncertain and Likely Dystopian Future, um, which I think you wrote as part of the uh, Teachers of the Year um, blog platform. And by about, the way, did I call it dystopia? Like, good Lord, I called that Likely, one. likely <laughs> dystopian. Wow. Yeah, yeah, you were right on the mark. Um, I think even more so now. And it, it's about teaching social studies in the age of Trump. And I just want you to read, read a little quote from this. Um, With depressing regularity since the start of the 2016 presidential campaign, I've felt a tug to blow up large chunks of planned lessons because of a morning indictment, Congress, congressional hearing, some norm shadowing, shattering tweet. On the days that I do, I set a timer for 10 to 15 minutes and we talk through the scandal du jour. In these moments, my students are always more engaged. They ask incredibly thoughtful questions, then groan loudly when my timer goes off and we end our conversations. Each time I say to myself, this is how school is supposed to feel. So I realized that this piece wasn't about the AP per se. Sure. But I wonder whether the college board AP exams and courses effectively prevents us to a certain extent from being responsive. It's reductive focus prevents us from being responsible, responsive in the way that you, you really say that we need to be in this era you set a timer on those discussions, but the hands are kind of off the clock when it comes to preparing for the exam. And I just wonder if you see the college board and AP tests, you know, kind of another subject is standing in the way of our ability to be responsive in the ways that you believe we need to be in this era. I'm of two minds about this, if I'm being honest. And the first like short answer is yes. Uh, yeah. But the longer answer is, is that I actually am not as big a critic of standardization uh, as some folks might perceive me to be. And let me kind of go into why. Yes. Uh, I worked at a low income, high mobility school. And so I think our, our mobility was like somewhere around 70%. And there's like a military base nearby. There's a lot of like housing instability. So like kids coming in and out of the classroom uh, month to month, year to year, I would have like almost half the class or like 70% of the class turnover. It's actually really cool when a kid shows up from California or from Mississippi or from Missouri or from Seattle, and I can say to them, where were you in the curriculum? And they could say, oh, we were doing like linkage institutions. We were doing uh, elections and campaigns. Mm. That, that means like, like they, they, I know kind of where they are in the stream of things, and they can kind of adjust themselves and find themselves in the curriculum. I 
think that some of the practices we've seen in classrooms about like scripted teaching, like I, I, let me say this differently. I would not work in a school where I was given scripted curriculum and told to be on page, whatever lesson, whatever line, whatever day to day. But I do think it's useful and frankly kind of neat. The idea that like everybody who is teaching AP government, a kid could show up in one class to the next uh, across the country and actually end up kind of in the right spot. And so I'm, I'm a fan of the idea that there's a kind of articulated course articulation from the college board that I'm able to work with. Uh, my students have always done well on the exam. And so I don't especially feel handcuffed by the exam because I've, I've, I have liberty when I'm teaching. Like all that being said, does testing occupy far too much room uh, in the average school student's calendar? Like absolutely. You mentioned my testimony to, to the Washington State Board of Education. Like yes. one of the things that I called for the state of Washington to do was, was just reduce the testing burden kids have. Like kids are not opposed to taking tests that have value to them. Like my students got excited about the AP exam. Like we would have review sessions and they would show up on Saturday back in the States uh, for three hour sessions uh, before mm-hmm. the exam. Uh, I would give them a pep talk where I would give the speech from the warriors basically and end right. it with, can you take it? <laughs> and like, it was their opportunity to beat the odds. But like what they did not give a damn about was a smarter balance assessment. Right. Right. And so I'm not anti-testing per se. I'm anti-testing that does not have meaning. And I'm also anti-putting consequences to testing where the person who was either taking the test or the person who taught the student taking the test has no agency over the results. Right. You know, I wonder one one kind of follow-up question with that. And I, I know that this wasn't necessarily a subject that you taught. not sure if you did, but... You know, I wonder about the college board sort of dictating the curriculum. So, you know, it, it, it makes sense. It's reasonable to expect there to be an assessment at the end of all this. But there have been some controversies around the curriculum. I'm thinking in particular world history. Oh, yeah. Uh, which recently, you know, decided that we're going to eliminate, you know, basically all this history before colonialism and slavery. That's basically what everyone's history was, essentially, when we talk about world history. How do you how do you wrap your mind around that, or or what's the solution there in terms of the 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 just the the stranglehold in many cases that the college board has on it, you know this concept of advanced placement? Yeah, this is the downside of my earlier conversation about nationalizing the college board because mm. if you nationalize the college board, now Betsy DeVos is in charge of the college board, and like what have we, <laughs> like what have we won, right? <laughs> right. So that brings me to like my other option. And my other option is, is instead of having this private organization make these choices, what if uh, universities and states created exams for students where kids could get uh, high school, could get college credit for high school work? Like what if there was an exam created by the University of Texas, University of Washington, University of Oregon, and kids in, the univer- in, in those states could get credit at all the state schools uh, by passing those exams? Think about the different exams that could be created that could be uh, catered to the environment in states. Think about uh, how different states could uh, interweave indigenous history into conversations. Like the point that you're making about the college board's elimination of like units one and two, I think it is in world history. Like you're Mm -hmm. right, you're right, you're right. Uh, But one of the answers also that is, is that who at the college board made that decision? Like, I don't know. Like the college board is this monolith that has Trevor Packer as a mouthpiece on Twitter and doing like bad videos from time to time. But like the people, (laughs) the people who operate the college board, like aren't known officials. That's one of the things. So you mentioned earlier on my teacher of the year program, 
Um, mm-hmm. One of the aspects of the teacher of the year experience that I really appreciated was, was I got to meet a lot of the state school chiefs. And there mm-hmm. are state chiefs uh, across the United States, both uh, Democrats, Republicans, nonpartisan, uh, conservative, liberal people, people who have more business mindsets uh, than I have, who are also incredibly thoughtful about this work. Uh, I've been watching Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers and how he's been handling the COVID outbreak in Wisconsin and thinking about when I first met him when he was the superintendent of schools in Wisconsin. Like these mm-hmm. decisions need to be made not by bureaucrats inside of a nonprofit that we have no access to, but by elected officials and political appointees who can be held accountable. Mm. Gotcha. All right. Well, I, I know you're a nerd. Your your podcast says as much. Um, I, I noticed that you explained the civil war and civil rights to Bill Gates using Star Wars as a metaphor. Very cool video there. I'm gonna I'm gonna close with a Star Wars question, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Which is worse, the prequels or the sequels, and why? Oh wow. Okay, so here's the deal. <laughs> so I actually don't mind the sequels, except for the Rise of Skywalker. Like okay. I I actually have a Google Doc that I and a couple of friends com- compiled that has all of our complaints about Rise of Skywalker and I think it runs in like the 7 page range and among the complaints <laughs> are uh essentially the entire plot of the film happens in I think 18 hours cuz that's like at the beginning they're like the emperor has his fleet he plans on doing this thing in 18 hours so the entire thing happens right. in 18 hours and that 18 oh, hours wow. includes the millennium falcon being destroyed twice and then like rebuilt in dry dock uh that includes like <laughs> the fake death of chewbacca the uh the fake erasure of c3po and then like the uh the like the erasure of that moment like that's all nonsense 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 yeah that said like the prequels are terrible and like anybody, <laughs> anybody who wants to defend Clone Wars or defend uh, uh, the Phantom Menace can walk. Like they're just they're hot trash. <laughs> like Hayden Christensen can't act. He's probably the worst actor to appear in a Star Wars film. And if you think mm-hmm. about it, a lot of bad actors have been in those films. Uh, I would say. So Rogue One exists outside of the prequels and the sequels. It's kind of like right. it belongs to Episode Four, Five, and Six, but was made during Episode uh, Seven, Eight, and Nine. I'm going to argue that Rogue One might actually be the best Star Wars film. Like I adore that film. And I just, I I wish that the folks who got the keys to the franchise when they did Rogue One, uh, them and Ryan Johnson should have had the keys to the prequels, sorry, to the sequels, instead of having this weird thing where it was J.J. Abrams, then Ryan Johnson, and then J.J. Abrams undoing what Ryan Johnson did. Right. Yes. I agree with so much of what you just said there. Well, Nate, thank you so much for being with me today. I wish you, your wife, and your students the very best for the rest of this year. And uh, hopefully we can get the college board to back down. I'm not holding my breath. Well, if if their plan is really to have my students take the exam at midnight, then I am going to become an advocate over here that every international school that like who has So I'm going to use my voice to tell teachers and tell schools that they should pivot from using the AP to the IB because like this, Mm. what is happening right now is so unjust, like words can't describe it. Yeah. Well, thank you again for being with me and I wish you all the best. Thank you. Nate Bowling joined me today. He is an AP politics and government teacher at the American Community School of Abu Dhabi. You can find Nate at his website, natebowling.com and on Twitter at Nate underscore Bowling. Also make sure to check out his podcast, The Nerd Farmer Podcast. 
That concludes today's episode of TG2Cast. If you'd like more information, check out our website at teachersgoinggradeless.com, our Facebook group, Teachers Going Gradeless, or you can follow us on Twitter at TG2Chat. Please subscribe to the podcast to catch future installments of TG2Cast. Thanks for listening. 